Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Nina Kennedy is a concert pianist, orchestral conductor, filmmaker, spoken word artist, TV talk show host, and author. Born in Nashville, Tennessee, this child prodigy was presented in her first complete piano recital at nine years old. She received her first musical instructions from her parents, who were both members of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. In 1987, the John Wesley Work III Memorial Foundation presented Nina in her New York debut recital at Lincoln Center. After her New York debut, Kennedy embarked on her second European tour, which included concerts in London, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Brussels, and Amsterdam. In Europe, she performed and resided in Vienna, Cologne, and Paris. She also served as conducting apprentice with the New York Philharmonic. Nina is the subject of a mini-documentary titled Portrait, an American Concert Pianist, produced for broadcast on PBS. In 2006, she directed and produced a feature-length documentary film about her father, which won the prize for the best film by a black filmmaker at the 2007 Nashville Film Festival. Since 2016, Kennedy and her partner, April Gibson, have been hosting an artist salon in New York City. She's the host of a Nashing with Nina show broadcast on MNN, Brooklyn Information and Cultural Network, and Bronx Network. The show recently won the 2021 Be Free Entertaining Award celebrating local journalism, and the community-made stories that air on its Brooklyn Free Speech TV and podcast network. In 2019, she collaborated with rapper Nejma Nefertiti on the single Blue, White, and Red. In 2021, Nina decided to tell her story in the Lambda Literary Award-winning book, Practicing Love, a Memoir. We're so honored to have this powerhouse with us today. Nina, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? How are you today? (laughs) I am very well, thank you. It's a beautiful day here in New York City, and I'm uh, I'm still kind of walking on air because we just found out uh, Saturday that um, our cable show, the Noshing with Nina show, 
won a 2021 Be Free Award. Wow. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The award ceremony was uh, Saturday, a virtual ceremony this year. But we were nominated in two categories, in uh, Be Entertaining and Be Harmonious. And our show won the award for Be Entertaining. So I'm very excited about that. Well, that, that, is, that is awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, because it's a lot, you know, when you do it, and sometimes you do it, you know, you start out with a love, and then you just sort of like, when they get the recognition, it's always cool. Right. You know, one of the things that, that first grabbed me about you, when you were writing, you, you talked about why you wrote the book, but the other thing is like, I read, read how you said how at one point, when you were out hanging out, how you talked one language, and then when you went home, you talked another language. Right. And I can so agree. I can so understand that. You know, yeah. I can so understand that that doing it. You know, we went to. You know, I went to Catholic school, and so you know, so it sort of like made me separate from everybody else. I had to pick up this other lingo so I could be the one of the cool kids. And then when I went mm-hmm. home, you know, I had to enunciate clearly. <laughs> right, right. And to think oh, that the denial my parents were in, how they just thought that hearing this kind of slang wouldn't have an impact on me. Like I could mm-hmm. just forget about it and speak the king's English. But meanwhile, I'm at school and my and I'm feeling like my life is being threatened because kids are threatening to beat me up and... You know, I'm uh, I'm ostracized because I'm making good grades and the teachers liked me, but I didn't understand the, the slang they were speaking. And I remember coming home one day and thinking I would try out some of these uh, choice words on my mother. <laughs> she made it very clear that I was not to use such language ever again. So, uh, yeah, it's really a case of being bilingual. I mean, really, I mean, I, I can just sort of see that. I can imagine because, I mean, you know, to go home and it's like, you know, you drop something and it's a look that, that look, you know, the look that sort right. of like makes you freeze on your track. Mm-hmm. Like, oops, <laughs> that was supposed to be my inner voice. <laughs> right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us more about, can you tell us more about what was it like, you know, navigating childhood as a child prodigy? Ooh, well, I learned to keep a lot to myself. Um, mm. In fact, I was told when mm. I uh, I had my handwriting analyzed, uh, I think it was in, in junior high school, and one of our substitute teachers happened to um, analyze handwriting. And she took mm. a look at my handwriting, and she said, uh, you know, you, you hide your feelings very well. And at the time, I really didn't understand what that meant because it was just normal to me to not express uh, what was going on with me uh, emotionally. You know, my my mother was doing all of the expressing at home, so I pretty much uh-huh. had to uh, to keep things silent. But I also learned not to share uh what was going on because school was really a, a nightmare. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. Every single day I had to go and face this this verbal abuse and sometimes physical abuse and I didn't have the capacity to defend myself. You know, I was too afraid of being sent to the 
principal's office, and uh, my my mother's equilibrium was very precarious, so I didn't want to get in trouble to uh, make mm. things worse for her. So um, I just pretty much shut down. I was very mm. emotionally shut down the whole time growing up. Mm. So most of the kids uh, didn't even know that I was a child prodigy. I, I didn't share any aspect of, uh, of that life with them. After school, I would go to the white side of town, to the, uh, the Blair School of Music. It was the Blair Academy back then. And uh, I got along well with the white kids. You know, the white kids were very nice to me and very respectful, and they, uh, they seemed to admire my ability. So musically, mm-hmm. I was more social with them. And I remember um, in junior high school when I was engaged to appear as piano soloist with the Nashville Symphony at age 13, and I was doing the, the Rhapsody in Blue. And that was the first time my classmates heard me play on the piano. I remember we were in the band room, and there was an upright piano in one of the practice rooms, and I just started to play some of the Rhapsody in Blue. And they were shocked. <laughs> they had no idea. You know, they'd known me all this time, and they had no idea that I could play the piano like that. So that just shows how isolated I was. You know, my, my parents mm-hmm. really um, insisted on my, my isolation. They didn't want me to make friends. They didn't want me to bring anybody home. Uh, part of the problem was that my father was a hoarder. He was a ah. hoarder. Yes, and my, my mother didn't want anyone to see the condition of the house. You know, it got worse as I grew older, and after a while, no one from the outside world was allowed inside of our house. So uh, it was a pretty, pretty chaotic situation. But I survived it. <laughs> I survived it and lived to tell about it. You know, your father though was playing piano at nine, mm-hmm. and you know, and he had that. I mean, so there were some things that he was experiencing. I mean, which I mean, which also like really moved me, like how, you know, how I, um, I know when the the things that you the short films that you had done, and how he was saying how people were like, well, you know, he's kind of smart, he's pretty ordinary, but you know, he seems to have an ear for music. Was he able to empathize or with what you were going through as a child, you know, who was a prodigy, who was very talented, but not connecting with the community. Was he able to empathize with you at all, or was it was just like, you know, study your piano? Yeah, no, that that was it. He really, uh, nothing else mattered to him other than the piano. You know, he really uh-huh. didn't want any outside influences that would interfere with my practicing or uh, excelling at the piano. That was, uh, it was, clearly the most important thing to him. And also, you know, they they had some struggles, the two of them, as a couple, because mm-hmm. he had his hoarding, and she ultimately uh, resorted to um, alcoholism, really, I think, mm-hmm. um, just as mm-hmm. a, a, a means of self-comfort, you know, um, self-medicating, um, because she was clearly unhappy in the marriage, and... Uh, they were of the generation that just didn't believe in divorce, so mm-hmm. they stayed together and miserable <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. For, for the bulk of my life. And uh, and they really had no idea of the role modeling they were doing for me. 
um, just uh, showing me that marriage for a woman was just really a, a dead end street. You know, here she she had been a classical pianist. She had been quite uh-huh. recognized in the black community in her day. But then when they were both on the faculty at Fisk, you know, their colleagues just more or less expected her to to be the wife and take the back seat. Mm. And he was held up as the director of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. And, you know, they were both on the piano faculty. They had an equal number of students and were the same rank as associate professors. But... Um, at the church, I remember, and at other organizations, they they really uh, encouraged my mother just to sit back, you know, take the back seat, and just focus on being the wife. And she tried to do that, but that's not who she was. You know, mm-hmm. she was she was mm-hmm. a concert artist, and she was a respected professor. So um, it, it's unfortunate that she really wasn't able to to fight. You know, this was really before the days of feminism, and um, you know she would make disparaging comments about feminists. So she really didn't see herself in that category. But at the same time, she didn't know how to how to fight and win her own battles. You know, she just sat back and let my father take the the credit, and uh, he served as chairman of the music department for a couple of years and she would have been much more qualified to chair the music department but at that time Mm -hmm. she wasn't considered because she was female so it it was a lot to watch you know but getting back to your question he really um, he just wasn't capable he was pretty emotionally shut down himself Mm -hmm. and he couldn't perceive his wife's drinking problem and he couldn't perceive the impact that it was having on me so his way of coping or not coping was just to stick his head in the sand and, and focus on giving concerts, you know, standing mm-hmm. ovations, playing the piano. That was, that was the most important thing. How did they deal with, I mean, it's a contradiction, really, and part of it is generational because, like you said, um, you know, women, they had the women's role, you know, mm-hmm. what you were supposed to do. I know that there were you know, because you and I are in the same generation also, but where there was that part where if you were a girl, you could go and do this and that, but your aspiration should be, you know, to find someone. And the other thing that I love is you say, how you never dreamed of a big wedding, of a white dress, or an adoring husband. Instead, you dreamed of playing Carnegie Hall. Now, from that era, you know, that's a, that was a huge contradiction of what society's expectation was of you and what you were even seeing that here your father was rising in the ranks but your mother was supposed to be at home and her dreams were sort of squashed to be this, you know, perfect this little wife. Right, how did right. you deal with those contradictions? And how did, you know, your father supported you, you know, wanted you to play, 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 but you were a girl. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, another thing that I talk about in the book was the uh, skin color issue, because mm-hmm. my my father was darker skinned as compared to my mm-hmm. mother, and in his day, they saw light skinned women, you know, as as having direct mm-hmm. access to the massa, you know, being in the mm-hmm. big house and the 
the high yellows, you know, they brought the, the food out to the field slaves and uh-huh. uh, made sure they didn't starve during the winter. So he, he had my mother on a pedestal and transferred some of that uh, ideology onto me. You know, he really saw me as being a savior to him. I remember there were times when he wanted me to get on the phone with people to make phone calls for him, or he wanted me to write letters for him. He just, he didn't feel that he was articulate enough. He, he said that to me several times, you know, I, and I watched, my mother used to be the one to write his letters and make his phone calls. And then when she wasn't doing that anymore, he just went to me and <laughs> wanted me to uh, to take on that role for him. But he was he was not seeing me as as just a female. He was seeing me as a light skinned female who would have privilege mm. in the white world, you know. And um, uh, yes, it's it's such a deep psychological issue that African Americans yeah. carry. You know, this whole mm-hmm. colorism, you know, and um, I just, it's, it's so unfortunate that they never really got a chance to dig into these issues, you know, even to discuss them among themselves. All they knew how to do was just uh, distract or deflect, you know, or just, just focus on playing the piano or giving concerts. That was supposed to be enough, you know, but these, these deeper issues, um, if I was going to date someone white, you know, that was just, that was something that was, it wasn't actively discouraged, but I got the message that it was out of the question, you know, mm-hmm. not to bring a, a, a white boy home or uh, as I got older to bring a white woman home, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. they were on very different behavior if I was dating someone white as compared to when I was dating someone black. You know, so it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff to juggle. You know. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned just the issue of colorism within the black community, and you know how that dynamic in itself is so different compared to within you know white spaces, because you know there is that light skin privilege, but you know, at the end of the day, they still view you as black. And, right. you know, that's, that's, you're still, you still have that privilege, but, you know, you're also lacking privilege, that racial privilege. So, you know, in your experience as a light-skinned black woman, how was, how were you able to just show up in the world of classical music, you know, this historically very white European space. Right, right. Well, it was a challenge, I'll tell you. I uh, I wrote in the book about um, being accepted at the Curtis Institute uh, mm-hmm. for my mm-hmm. undergrad work, and uh, that year they had three openings in the piano department, and 72 pianists showed up to audition for these three openings, and I got one of the mm-hmm. three openings, and Curtis Institute, you know, all of the students are on full scholarship. It's, uh, it's funded by the, the Mary Curtis Bach Foundation, and um, the, the students don't have, to, uh, don't have to pay tuition. They have, they, they're responsible for their own room and board, but uh, tuition is covered. And the, the teacher who was assigned to me was uh, Eleanor Sokoloff, 
who uh, passed away earlier this year. Uh, I think she was over a hundred when she died, but mm. she had a she had a reputation for being a tough cookie, and um, you know she said a couple of things that just really shocked me. I um, I remember just being in a lesson and she demanded that all of her students play these um, technical exercises. She didn't want to listen to any repertoire the whole first year. We were just supposed to do these Pichna exercises and scales and arpeggios. So it was mm-hmm. dying of boredom. But that was what she demanded. And um, one day, just out of the blue, she blurted out... Um, What's it like to be oppressed? Now, meanwhile, <laughs> we had never had a conversation about my being black or anything like that. She just blurted out, what's it like to be oppressed? And I, you know, at that time, I was 18, and I wasn't even thinking in those terms, you know, of being perceived mm. by all of these white people as a black person. It's just something that didn't cross my mind. I was working too hard just trying to function among uh-huh. these folks. And there were times, mm-hmm. you know, like when you're looking out over a sea of white and you forget that you're the only fly in the buttermilk. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's you have to turn that part of the brain off sometimes just to be able to function. And mm-hmm. I remember what I said. I remember I was kind of hemming and hawing because Remember, this woman was my teacher. She had complete uh-huh. control over whether or not I was even readmitted to the school the following year. So I just said, made up something that I thought would would please her. I made, I think, I made a connection to uh, to her being Jewish and you know what some of the Jewish people mm-hmm. had endured, and uh, I thought I'd gain points for that. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, but it was just really a shock. But it showed me that as far as she was concerned, you know, she saw me as a black person first and foremost. Uh-huh. That fact had never escaped her mm-hmm. mind, regardless of how light-skinned I might have been or how articulate I might have been. That was the first thing that she thought of. And, you know, she was one of the, um, one of the faculty who wouldn't allow um, Nina Simone to study there when she applied uh-huh. at the Curtis Institute. Yeah. So, you know, those those roots ran deep. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, and, and keeping that, you know, because as black people, we have a lot to unpack, which sometimes I think that in some ways we're just starting to, I know that's one of the, the things that I enjoyed about talking with Shader. But, okay, you, we talked about colorism. I mean, we also talk about, you know, like the hair texture and everything. But the mm-hmm. other part of it is here you are, in a field, uh, performing in an area where clearly, you know, like you said, she still saw you as black. There's also that part of when we are performing, working in that, and we are the only one where we are seen as the exotic. Mm-hmm. Um, did you sense that that sometimes, and, and was that like um, – an additional tension, not only were you there, and even if they didn't talk about all those years, you know, that you were there, but that you were, it put you on a a pedestal of what you had to perform at, but then at the same point here, you know that in her mind she had certain stereotypes about what she was expecting for you, you know, like, oh, I know she's going to want some ham hocks in a minute, (laughs) 
So, so did did you have to deal? Did you sense that you know? Okay, I'm in this place, and then I'm in here. I am the exotic, and not being a fighting to maintain your authenticity in that role. Well, uh, as far as the exoticism, I think I felt that more while I was living in Europe. I mm. lived there for several mm. years, and you know, I had the the double edged sword by by being American. So everybody wanted to talk to me because I was American. They wanted to try out their English. And then, you know, having this exotic look, um, they were much more fascinated um, over there. The Americans, you know, uh, honestly, I think one of the biggest issues where, certainly where my teacher at Curtis was concerned, was uh, financial. You know, she had... a a large number of primarily Asian female students and she didn't necessarily push them to uh, to have careers but the fact that she took them on as students and they their families were paying for private lessons with her now granted they didn't have to uh, pay tuitions but you know these were wealthy mostly Korean shipping families and many of them made large donations to the school. Um, and I was learning that this is, this is a pattern you're going to see in classical music in this country, especially. A lot of people just want to see how much money is behind you. And when you come in as a black person, they just automatically assume, oh, you know, she ain't got no money. You know, ain't uh-huh. no money coming uh-huh. from this family. You know, so I learned that I had to attach myself to other wealthy white families out of Nashville to, um, to make an impact there. And there were times when you really needed an, inter- an intermediary, you know, to, to negotiate with artist management agencies or conductors or orchestras. You know, they want to hear from a rich white person who's going to finance your engagement. And uh, at least in this day and age, there's some, some wealthy black people we can go to, but, you know, how, how am I going to get Oprah on the phone and ask her to call the uh-huh. New York Philharmonic on my behalf? I mean, how's that uh-huh. going to work, you know? But there were several uh-huh. people, you know, wealthy families in Nashville who were on a first-name basis with the conductor of the Nashville Symphony and, you know, who were able to make, uh, make inroads for me. But that was something that... I needed a father to do. You know, a lot of the young females mm-hmm. in this field, you'll, you'll find out if you look into their backgrounds, that they have very pushy parents who are able to make those phone calls and, and make those demands, you know, and even offer financing to uh, see to it that their daughters are, are engaged. And there are still a lot of uh, male conductors in this business who only do business with other men. I I talk about that in the book. So if you're a female, if you don't have a father speaking on your behalf or a husband or a brother or somebody male, you're going to have you're going to have a lot of difficulty just penetrating that wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So isn't it something how how those things are there? And did did you find that did you were you pushed harder? Did you find that some of your instructors were harder on you or think that it was just a fluke that you could do this? And so 
they were going to make you show them, you know, that you could, you could in fact, play like that? Well, my teacher at Juilliard, uh, William Macellus, was very kind. He was really mm-hmm. one of the sweetest men I had ever met, and he, uh, he was very nurturing and supportive, and um, I remember the, uh, the letter of recommendation that he wrote for me when I graduated. He really just gave me the, the highest praise. So I was very, very lucky to be able to work with him. And uh, the other teachers I had at Juilliard, I remember Mary Anthony Cox I had for ear training, and who was a taskmaster. She was really mm-hmm. tough. But I came out of her class feeling like I was ready. <laughs> there wasn't mm-hmm. anything you could throw at me that would, you know, throw me off. And uh, she was also uh, teaching ear training for the conductor's classes. So uh, I continued uh, to work with her while I was doing the conducting work. And um, I was very lucky. You know, that that first teacher at Curtis was my, my worst experience. But after I left her, I went to study with um, with Natalie Hinderis. That uh, she mm-hmm. was on the faculty at Temple University, there in Philly, mm-hmm. for uh, the rest of my undergrad. And uh, when I graduated from there, I came here to New York and started work at Juilliard in the master's program. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that you have a connection to, which I, you know, was the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Mm-hmm. You know. And, I mean, they weren't new. I mean, and as I was reading about them and how long they had been there and what they'd been doing, and it was like that's a part of our history that, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, so many, just like African Americans, many of them, I know people like, I took a friend to go see classical music, and she was like, we don't go see that. And I said, no, you need to come see this, you know. (laughs) And, um but to see how much music was and how talented we are, you know, and, and have been. And you, right. you know, you were, right, you were right there. You got to see that. Did you appreciate what you were seeing as, as a young person? And then as you came back as an adult and recognizing what these Jubilee singers had, what they had held in their hand, that history of music, that they had held in their hand through all these years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a very unique experience just being uh, exposed to that every day, you know, and mm-hmm. seeing that, that painting, mm-hmm. that larger-than-life-size painting that hangs in Jubilee Hall that was uh, commissioned by Queen Victoria back in 1873. Um, mm-hmm. And seeing them, I really thought they were, they were more famous in this country than they were. Mm. You know, I'd go with them and my father when my father was directing uh, to do local television shows and um, I would tour with them um, when I was younger and uh, got to see a lot of the country going on tours with them and, you know, seeing the newspaper write-ups and they played Carnegie Hall uh, while my father was director at least three times. They did Carnegie Mm -hmm. Hall. Mm And um, I, I thought they were, you know, more famous in this country than they've turned out to be because the few times they've come to New York while I've been here, I was shocked to see that there was nothing on the, in the media, nothing on uh-huh. TV, nothing in the newspaper 
You know, it was if mm-hmm. the, the performance was just ignored. I mean, I was on the phone <laughs> with the, mm-hmm. the local mm-hmm. television stations trying to get some kind of coverage, you know, with this, this mm-hmm. uh, 150-year history it is this year. And uh, the press mm-hmm. just ignores them. And, and I know that's the responsibility of the public relations department there at the university, but they got to do better. I mean, young kids are growing up mm-hmm. not having any idea of who the Fifth Jubilee Singers were when I, when I produced my, my documentary on my father's life mm-hmm. and uh, included a lot of history on the Jubilee Singers. And there for a while I was taking it around to the various high schools here in the area and uh, showing it to the kids. And most of them had never heard of the Fifth Jubilee Singers. They never heard of Fifth University. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, you know, I think... A lot of that, it, it, it's also a part of, of systemic racism. We have here, and I know that my mother, she, has a, she had a friend who actually now is in her hundred. She's over 100 and she lives um, in Arizona. And there is this group, it was the Brazil, Denard, Correll. And they've been around singing like forever. And one time, it was during Black History Month, of course, I mean, you know, when at the DSO, they had a black conductor, okay, and which was the first, nothing, nothing at all, you know, in the news. And that was the one that I took this friend of mine to. And, like, they had played, he had conducted a lot of things. And then at the end, like, he had them come out and they were singing some things. And then for his final piece, he had, and at that point, there were maybe, like, about 10 of them who were left from the original group who were, like, in their 80s and 90s. And they, these, these elders came out and they sang, lift every voice. Mm-hmm. And the fact that many of them afterwards talked about how, Maybe they had been able to work as ushers or they couldn't come in. And that was something about that moment. I mean, it, it literally brought me to tears. But the thing, too, what brought me to tears was I looked around and the audience was predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, mm-hmm. hadn't seen anything in the paper. And the person who I took with me who was black, she was like, I didn't know this kind of stuff happened. Why don't we know this? And I know that you talk about um, how, how in the media, sometimes they don't cover us. They don't right. lift up our history. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't think it's important. Mm-hmm. And it directly contradicts the agenda that they want to push forward, you know. Um, like everybody knows about the, the New World Symphony by Dvorak, the Ninth Symphony. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. people don't really know. I mean, there's some talk about the fact that he used American melodies in the symphony, but people don't know that it was, you know, a, a melody that was notated and arranged by a woman, by Ella Shepard, who had been a former slave mm-hmm. and who was a member of the, the original oh. group of Fisk Jubilee Singers, you know, traveled with them all over the world, and she was uh, the matriarch of the original group, and was with them when they sang for Queen Victoria and uh, the other crown heads of Europe and, and really founded Fisk University from the proceeds from that tour. They, uh, they were able to build Jubilee Hall there on the Fisk campus, which is the first permanent structure built in the United States for the purpose of educating freed slaves. 
mm -hmm. former slaves. So, mm -hmm. you know, just, just the story of Ella Shepard, and I, I write about her in the book. Here she's this, this child prodigy, you know, a wunderkind, studied piano with a German professor uh, after she and her father moved to Ohio. And um, her father had had to purchase her freedom to get away from, uh, from the plantation. They were working on, on uh, Andrew Jackson's plantation. And she was yeah. already being used by the, the slave mistress to, uh, to spy on her mother and the people in the slave quarters. And, um, you know, the, the story goes that her mother was about to kill her daughter and commit suicide. She took her down to the river and was supposedly going to drown her. And the, the legend is that an old slave woman came on them and said, um, you know, don't do it, honey. The Lord has need of this child. And then she goes on to say something about, don't you see God's chariot coming down to take her home? Don't do it. And this child is going to sing for kings and queens. And she gives her prophecy, then disappears. Mm. And um, just to, to cap off that story, when... Uh, Alice Shepard's father purchased her freedom. She was sold for three hundred and fifty dollars as a young teenager. Mm. Wow. Child prodigy, yeah, wunderkind, you know, a black American female Mozart being bought and sold. Oh, wow. So you know, Thank these you are these so are much. stories. Oh, yeah. No. Well, these stories need to be told, you know. Yeah, and thank you so much for, you know, telling that history because passing down black American musical history is so important. I mean, I, I don't even know how many black children in this day and age know about, you know, artists and entertainers such as Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Cap Calloway. Like, I'm really curious, you know, if you were to ask your, you know, your everyday black child, like, do you, do you know this person and, you know, as you mentioned, Nina, that passing down that history is so important. And I'm, you know, curious about, you know, for black people, whether they want to play classical music or just simply love listening to classical music, what is, you know, something that they should know about just the, the black presence in classical music? Ah, well, I would encourage them to start with Marian Anderson. Mm -hmm. uh, Marian Anderson was a superstar in the, um, well, her career started in, in Philadelphia in the black community. She was praised um, as, as a teenager. Her voice was just one of a kind, but there again, it wasn't until she went to Europe that she really became a star, and that was when uh, Saul Hurok heard about her. He's the big concert manager here in the United States and um, he was encouraged to listen to her and he signed her right away and then it was uh, a result of his maneuvering that she ended up uh, singing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial when the, uh, the, the Daughters of the American Revolution refused to let her sing at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C. Um, that they had a policy of uh, white performers only. So they wouldn't let her sing there. So she sang at the Lincoln Memorial, and it ended up being the first integrated audience there in Washington, D.C. Now, this, this is right before World War II. This is like 
1938. So FDR is going to send black men over to fight Hitler while it's still segregated at home. <laughs> he really used this mm. as, a, as a propaganda ploy to show, you know, how much better we are than those Nazis are. But, um, yeah, she was a huge star. It was when she came back from Europe that she uh, had a sold-out concert at Carnegie Hall and was regularly seen on television and heard on radio. She was one of the early um, uh, recording artists for RCA Victor. And uh, mm-hmm. if you can find those uh, those recordings online, a lot of them are, are online. But uh, And she did this. She had such a huge career just doing concerts. She didn't stand on an opera stage until the 1950s. I think it was 1958 or something like that. That was her her first operatic performance. And um, she didn't need the opera house the way so many classical singers do. Now you need to attach yourself to an opera house and uh, uh, in some cases tour with the uh, the opera company but she she did it on her own just doing concerts and recitals mm. so uh, yes mm. that, that I would strongly recommend to just listen to as much Marian Anderson as you can and of course she set the groundwork for Leontine Price to come along mm-hmm. and Jesse Norman mm. and then Kathleen Battle and you know, all of these wonderful sopranos that uh, who were able to perform on the opera stages and didn't have to contend with segregated concert halls. You know, but it all began with Marian Anderson. Yeah. No, and I, we're going to take our first break. And um, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your filming your dad and more about music. So we'll be right back. Okay. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And I'll tell you, Nina, I wanted to talk about the book, but, I mean, there's so much, you know. I really was moved by your filming your dad. Hmm. You know, how difficult, you know, because I know that later in life, my father and I were at that point where I could have seen where I could have, I could have you know, talk to him about things, and he would share a lot of stuff with me. But there was a period in time before that when, no, that wasn't going to happen. How did that come about, and what was that experience? How did it leave you Mm. when you finished? 
Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, those are more details um, that I share in the second book. You know, there's a sequel to this one. <laughs> the second ah! book. <laughs> it's called uh, Practice What You Preach. It's already at the publisher, so it should be coming out within the next couple of months. But that experience really began um, when my mother died. And they had moved into a, a, a retirement community uh, just in the outskirts of Nashville. And I had never been to that home until um, after my mother's funeral. That was the first time I walked into that place. And, you know, it, he had been a, a hoarder in my childhood home, and the hoarding had just gotten out of control. And they moved there with all that crap. I mean, there were still boxes just piled from floor to ceiling you know the the garage was so full of crap they couldn't even get the car in the garage it was just ridiculous mm. so I remember mm -hmm. I tell the story in the book about how I walked in the front door and then here it was just after my mother's funeral so all of these strangers were there in the house you know people I'd never met before and I saw all the junk all over the place and Obviously, all of the, the chairs had been covered with papers and, you know, magazines and mail and stuff because he had just thrown it off of the chairs and dumped it in the floor. So I just walked in the front door. I walked through the front hallway, and then I walked through the living room and then right out the back door. <laughs> I didn't stop. Uh. It was just overwhelming. I just couldn't believe he paid movers to schlep all of this crap. And, you know, none of it organized. <laughs> That was the thing. Mm -hmm. Like there were important documents that were mixed together with trash. Mm. So once I saw all this stuff, I just thought, all right, somebody's got to go through all of this. So uh, I'm, I was there with, uh, with my partner at the time, and um, we just decided to spend a couple of days doing as much cleaning as we can just so that he could at least use his, his kitchen and started going through the material and trying to organize some of the papers. And as, as I was going through these documents, you know, these articles and photographs and programs from all over the world, you know, Jubilee Singer's programs and his programs as a solo pianist and my mother's programs as a solo pianist. And then there were the, the programs of the two of them touring as duo pianists. And yeah. articles in every language, mm -hmm. and uh, so I just decided then and there, okay, this this is enough material for a documentary. So I made arrangements to uh, just come back and uh, just put my life on hold and just spend, you know, a couple of weeks trying to organize the papers at least, you know, so that I could scan them in and just try to put them in some kind of chronological order. And then I started asking around in Nashville about who could help me with the actual production. And um, one of the the local newscasters, black woman, um, suggested that I talk to her cameraman, um, Gil Williams. And um, we made arrangements to meet. And he met my father. And um, he helped me with scanning everything in. And then he decided that he would just film the initial interviews with my father and uh, just with my asking the questions. And he also encouraged me to, to just put as much on paper as I possibly can, really to just construct a, a screenplay around how I wanted the, uh, the interviews to go because that was going to be our, 
our roadmap. Um, he, he said, it's, it's your worst nightmare when you're in the middle of a production and you just don't know what's next. So at least if you mm -hmm. have everything on paper, you can, mm -hmm. you can know what's, uh, what's in order. So he did the interviews. He filmed the interviews in my father's living room in front of the uh, grand piano. And based on the chronology of his life, I started to put together a list of the recordings I wanted to play. And these recordings were just, you know, they were rotting in his garage. Some of these were on these old reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And the recordings were so old that some of the tape was starting to disintegrate. So I had to find somebody in Nashville who could get all of this music onto digital format and uh, onto CDs. So I found somebody to do that for me. And then we got the music registered with the Library of Congress. And uh, this is a, this is a full-on project, and I'm doing all the fundraising myself and all the promotion. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, uh, but luckily, you know, several people in Nashville felt that this was a project that needed to happen, and I, I was amazed at how how ready some of them were to contribute. And and I was amazed at myself that I could call up somebody and say, "Give me twenty thousand dollars," and they'd write me a check. But they uh, they knew that this was a major project that we were preserving history, and uh, we had our world premiere at the Nashville Film Festival, and the the Fistibilly Singers came to perform at the uh, the opening night premiere, and and that was really really moving. Um, they told us that the the premiere had sold out. So they scheduled wow. a second screening so people could buy tickets. So a lot of people who held tickets for the second screening were able to come in and at least hear the, the Jubilee Singers perform since they were doing uh, mm. two of my father's arrangements of, of spirituals. His Every Time I Feel a Spirit and Steal Away, his arrangement of Steal Away. So, uh, yeah, that was really, really exciting. And they um, they had a new award for best film by uh, a black filmmaker and right before the screening they uh, they decided to announce the winner of that award initially in the program they had said they were going to announce the winner at the after party uh, after the screening but they decided to come up in the front and then they you know it was a big production just like the Oscars they had the envelope <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> you made it a big to do, and then they uh, they called my name. So wow. uh, to have a world premiere and to have it win an award, that was really uh, it. It told me that I was definitely doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Did it give you an insight into him that maybe before you had not had? Uh, well, a lot of these stories I had heard. He was already, let's see, he was in his 80s when we were doing those interviews. And um, I noticed that he really had difficulty talking about racism in the South. He didn't uh -huh. even want to acknowledge mm -hmm. it. There were, there were a couple of times when I, I really had to push him to talk about what it was like, you know, just to to go to the movies, for example, and he couldn't sit downstairs with white people. He had to go up to the segregated balcony. And then when, when the Russian pianist uh, Rachmaninoff came uh -huh. to the 
um, America, no, he was born in America. So he came to Macon, Georgia for a concert. And, uh, you know, this is during the Depression. And he, uh, they weren't allowed to sit downstairs with the whites, so they sat in the segregated balcony upstairs. And I was really pushing him to tell me what it felt like. And he claimed that it didn't bother him. Those were his exact mm. words. Segregation didn't bother mm-hmm. me that much. That's the way he put it. He just accepted it, you know. But there again, you have to consider he was, uh, he was his mama's baby. And mm-hmm. um, his father had died when he was, you know, less than two years old. So he really didn't have any memory of his father. So his, his mother was a single mom, you know, raising these three children and um, uh, terrified, really. In, uh, in rural Georgia uh, at that time because, you know, the Klan was doing their night rides and um, he mm. wanted to do everything to keep her at ease. So mm-hmm. he couldn't sound militant. He couldn't show anger. You know, he said he even knew of a man who had been lynched um, mm. or they were about to lynch him and then supposedly he belonged to a men's secret society and he gave the sign of that secret society and then one of the white men said oh, don't touch him another lick he's he's uh, my brother and mm. um, you know he was really he repeated that story several several times but um, mm-hmm. yeah the, um, the racism really it did a number on him you know the combination of just mm-hmm. trying to keep his mother calm and uh, to not show anger you know that that really spilled over into his adulthood and his his anger was very just out of control you know just dysfunctional people never saw him on the outside as an angry person but when he came home you know he he saved it all for us and he would just go off it was like he would have a personality change and then run around screaming and yelling and cussing and then you know go in another room and then come back like nothing happened so that was really how he blew off steam, you know, but he, couldn't, he really didn't have functional language to express the, the toll and the impact that it had on his psyche. He really, um, you know, he, he, he wasn't allowed to be masculine. He, he was positively reinforced for being emasculated, you know, at that time. Yeah. And he survived. He lived into his 90s. Wow. You know, it's funny that as I, you know, as you think about that, you know, and we've had this conversation, Kizzy and I, with different guests, you know, how mm-hmm. how he wanted to do certain things so that his mother wouldn't worry. We mm-hmm. still have young black people who may be trying to, whose mothers are concerned, they're having the talk, and they're concerned about them going out and just, that and how, you know, worrying about not riling up white people, and we still have young black people being killed, yes. and there has to be a rage. I mean, you know, like you said, like mm-hmm. there it was a different period in time to where how he showed his rage, but then you have to wonder, I mean, that rage hasn't gone away. We have not, right. it, it's mm-hmm. changed a form, but it's still there. Right. Yeah, and, um, music, you know, music has especially been healing for black people in particular in terms of, you know, coping through that rage and racial terror. And I'm sure that, you know, your father, Nina, found so much solace 
in the music that he played and the music that he listened to because, you know, music is in our blood as, you know, African descendants. Right, right. And he did his first album, his first solo album. Um, well, that's not true. He had done an album back when he was here in New York. After it was, He also went to Juilliard. Um, and he found a manager to work with him um, back then. But these were just 78 singles, you know. Um, mm. But he did a full album after, after my mother died. Um, and he had to wait until she died to, uh, to do some gospel numbers. <laughs> she would have been mortified if she didn't <laughs> know that he was playing gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, she was one of those. I don't know if they still call him Sudidi, but she she did not approve of gospel music. She uh, uh, and also he included some um, some jazz. Some uh, there's a whole Duke Ellington um, selection there, uh, a collection of uh, Duke Ellington's works that he arranged for solo piano, and uh, yeah, a couple of couple of gospel numbers that he arranged. So he kind of blossomed. <laughs> After she uh-huh. died, <laughs> I know she was uh, she was keeping him on a tight leash, but um, he, I I can safely tell you that every little old black lady in Nashville has a copy of his CD. <laughs> it was oh. familiar <laughs> favorites. That was the name of uh-huh. it. And, you know, he would go to women's events. You know, uh, people would invite him to to come and play. You know, just for a couple of numbers at a banquet or something. And when he would start to play, they would all start humming the melodies to these oh. pieces, you know. And some mm-hmm. of it was cla- most of it was classical. You know, he did some Beethoven on there and some Chopin, and they were all just humming along the melody. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, he had he had a real fan base among uh, the black ladies mm-hmm. in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love it? Don't you love it? No, you know, I. Now, getting back to, to music and your music, I'm, and I don't even remember, you know, because I've been, like, looking at things and, and seeing what you've done, and there is a picture where you go in, and it's a room, and it has several pianos, and mm-hmm. you go in and you start to play. I found that the most peaceful picture. I mean, there was just something about it when I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, and especially... I, I I love the piano. You know, I think the piano that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can tell people, you know, because I went to Catholic school, right? And we had Sister Rose Carmel. And the reason that I quit playing the piano because I didn't sit right and she would smack my, my, my hands with a ruler. And so I just quit. You know? Oh, but, no, that's horrible. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, well, you know, uh, she was like, she had to say that she was, like the black people could only go so far, you know, like, um, my brother wanted to be something. She said, well, you could be a, a mechanic or a janitor. You know, I could be a school teacher. But when I looked at that picture and I saw as you got ready to play and you stretched your arms out, I was right there with you. It was beautiful. Mm. <laughs> oh, Do you still you. have those moments when you go in and you become one with the piano and feel that, that yeah. the music, your music takes you? Yeah, well, you were talking about that uh, the video we did uh, in Vienna of the, uh-huh. uh, the Schumann Wiedmung and uh, the Franz Liszt arrangement of the, the Wiedmung, and that was such a beautiful piece. I remember the first time I heard that, and I just thought, 
I have to play this. I have to play this. And I really, it's interesting you use the word peace because I really saw it as the kind of music that this world needs. You know, it really, like at, at the time when I listened to it, I had some drama going on with somebody and I was carrying, <laughs> you know, a lot of negative feelings. And then mm-hmm. I was listening to this music mm-hmm. and it all just went away. You know, it just took mm-hmm. it away. And um, I just thought, okay, this is something I need to add to my repertoire because I hadn't played it before. And um, and then around that time, we I got the invitation to, to do the video there at the... Bersendorfer Salon in Vienna and uh, that was such a wonderful experience you know um, before then I think it was like the year before I had had the anniversary of my New York debut here at Lincoln Center um, I think it was the 30th anniversary I believe so my, my debut was in 1987 wow time is flying but uh, <laughs> we, had, we had done that um, that anniversary performance at the Steinway um, showroom here, the new showroom here on uh, Fifth uh-huh. Avenue. Um, it wasn't the old Steinway Hall where I used to go back in the day, you know, to the Steinway basement where all of the, the concert grands were. I, I would go there and, uh, in fact, I was preparing for my, my debut concert at Lincoln Center there on the Steinway basement. But anyway, you know, the, uh, the experience we had at the the new Steinway showroom was not very pleasant. And I learned around that time that uh, Steinway had been bought by a Trump supporter. No surprise because it just, the stench just, you know, it trickled down through the ranks to the staff and the kind of people that he surrounded himself with. But anyway, so I went from that experience to the experience with Bersendorfer in Vienna and it was night and day night and day the staff they were so helpful and wonderful they kept bringing us coffee you know whatever we wanted and then to shoot the video it happened to be a a holiday a national holiday that day so the showroom was closed and uh, some of the staff you know they wanted to go away early they gave us the keys <laughs> you saw that beautiful hall there with all of those pianos all lined up. They gave us the keys. I was like trying to figure out how to get a, a moving truck to come. <laughs> those were some gorgeous pianos, but yeah, night and day. I mean, I, I I guess I had to have the Steinway experience so that I could fully appreciate, you know, just just the difference. I mean, this is Vienna. This is the the home of music, um, you know, where Mozart lived and Beethoven lived and Schumann lived and Schubert and, you know, all of the great composers. And I lived there <laughs> for, uh, for several years. And it's just the, the state is devoted and dedicated to supporting the arts. You know, the concert halls mm-hmm. and the spaces. There's something like 10 orchestras that, that thrive within the city of, of Vienna. So musicians are just able to make a living from their work as musicians, you know, and, and it, they don't have to just play in the the Vienna Philharmonic, the, the big orchestra, you know, they can they can do their work with, with chamber groups and uh, small orchestral, I mean, uh, operatic orchestras. You know, it really, it's literally the city of music. And... Um, 
yeah, I loved it. I mean, I'm I'm dying for this this pandemic to be over so I can go back. They invited me to come back and give a concert. And uh, then the uh, the pandemic mm-hmm. happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, oh, there's so many conversations. And then, uh, and you know. the pandemic, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I have to shout out to our homegirl, Regina Carter. And um, she's a violinist. And at one point in time, she was able, and I want to say it was a Stradivarius that they let her, you know, they let her play. No one had played this, you know. And here's this little girl from De- from Detroit uh, who had played with a jazz uh, band, was straight ahead. And that moment when she talks about playing this, you know, this, this instrument and being like mm-hmm. that, was, is, was, was one of those pianos, those Steinways, was that, did you have that moment like, oh, my God, I get to play this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially uh, in the video, you know, there's, uh, it, it cuts the scene from the showroom, and then we go to the factory that has mm-hmm. for written across the top, and I'm, like, walking on the sidewalk, and then I go in. And that room, that, that's where all of their concert grands are. The concert grands are the, the nine-foot pianos. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I've got a room full of nine-foot-long pianos, and they are just just gorgeous. The sound, it's like none other. And the, uh, the bass, you can always recognize the sound of the bass on a Bersendorfer because the quality of the wood is very different and the way it's connected to the sounding board it's different and you know there were times when I I would just close my eyes and lose myself literally in mm. the sound mm. I was hearing and, uh, and then I'd have to remember wait a minute we're shooting a video focus focus <laughs> but uh, yeah that's, those are some beautiful instruments over there uh, that's beautiful who and or what would you say are your creative influences from whether that be artists, um, visual arts, musical arts? What would you consider some of your creative influences? Hmm. Well, um, as far as the writing goes, I initially um, was inspired by uh, well, first by the, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas by, by Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. That's a book I've, I've read mm-hmm. several times. And, you know, their encounters with the various artists of the day. You know, she talks about Paul Robeson coming to her salon in Paris and uh, Josephine Baker. And, mm-hmm. um, and then from Gertrude Stein, um, Anais Nin. I uh, enjoy reading her erotica. I really didn't start reading the diaries until after I read uh, the, you know, the erotic short stories. And some of my writing uh, really began with uh, erotic short stories that imitated her. But I, I wrote them for a female audience, and I wrote them as uh, spoken word pieces. Mm. So, I could take them into uh, mm. to some of the women's clubs here in New York and uh, read them for an audience. And that was just, that was an experience because I, I realized that I was bringing all of my skills as a musician to the readings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, starting, starting piano and then 
crescendo and then accelerando and you build up for climax and then you know by the time I was done they'd be screaming. (laughs) 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 You know, give them the full on, but you know you couldn't wheel a a nine foot piano into those spaces. I, I wouldn't be able to play for them, but I could read for them. And then uh, mm-hmm. I started having some dancers coming in, and they would interpret my words with their movements. And then uh, some TV crews started following ar- uh, following us around. That became a, a pretty fun pastime for a while. But let's see. I said Gertrude Stein, I mean, as musicians, uh, my favorite pianist is, is Horowitz, Vladimir Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, I have just about all of his recordings, and um, Oscar Peterson is right up there. I, uh, in fact, I was told when we did the video in Vienna that I was playing on Oscar Peterson's piano, his um, wow. uh, Imperial Grand, Bersendorfer Imperial Grand, and um, I love the old recordings of um, Arthur Rubinstein, and as role models, you know, even Ella Shepard. Um, certainly mm-hmm. a role model for me. You know, her um, mm. her presence is just so regal in that painting that the Queen Victoria commissioned. You know, she's seated right there at the at the keyboard, and um, also Marian Anderson. You know, as a role model. Just um, in fact, when I read that she really had to go to Europe to have that initial success, uh, that motivated me to just get on a plane and just mm-hmm. see what I could find. There you go. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anybody to make any introductions for me. I just went to see what I could find on my own. And it's, it's just an easier life over there. I find that mm-hmm. quality of life is so much more important to the Europeans than to the Americans. So to, to the Americans, it's all about, all about the dollar, you know, how much money you're going to make or uh, mm-hmm. how much you have. And... Um, there, it's it's about quality of life. You know, what what wine did you have with that cheese? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> little details are just just much more important. And they're they're quick to get bored if you talk about your work too much. You know, and they they joke about the Americans. Oh, the first things the Americans say is, "What do you do?" You know, what do you do for a living? And they consider it rude mm-hmm. if you ask that yeah. question in a first conversation. So uh, it really forced me to, to focus on other things, you know, uh, things that were ultimately more important that I hadn't been able to focus on before I got there. I was so busy just scrambling trying to figure out how to make a living since the government doesn't support us here uh-huh. Uh-huh. the way it does there. Yeah. Like we're too busy supporting the military. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true because, like, over... In Europe, you know, we, we talk about how Americans, you know, many of them don't take their vacation time. Where there, I mean, pay time off is, you know, but that's just what you do. You know, there's a way that right. you live that's different. Yeah. Right. Well, now, okay, and I love it, blue, white, and red. I love it. I did. I did. How did that come about? I mean, I just, I just loved from the beginning all the way through, and that mm-hmm. and that blend, because one of the things that you notice is a certain tempo, there's a certain beat, there's a way that different musics can can blend together beautifully, which is what happened here. How did that recording come about? 
Well, uh, blue, white, and red. Let's see. Well, <laughs> the, the rapper uh, Nejma Nefertiti, who uh, who did the lyrics, um, she had been uh, a member of our our salon. We were hosting an artist salon there again, imitating Gertrude Stein and Alice um, here in New York, um, artists would come into our, our living room initially and perform and share their work, you know, show films and videos. And um, Nejma and I had collaborated on another project. Um, and then we were, you know, she had asked me to think in terms of classical repertoire that she could rap over. And I thought... Mm. Yeah, well, the Greek concerto, that's kind of fast for a trap beat. That was what it was. Um, <laughs> I love um, that. Yeah, my, my uh, producer, April Gibson, who's the producer of the Noshing with Nina show, um, she had asked her nephew to send us some beats that he had been working on. And uh, we were thinking about something that, that Nejma could rap over. And then we had like three or four of them to choose from. And I thought, well, let's see. If I play the Greek, you know, and slow it down <laughs> so that uh -huh. the, the young kids can dance to it and they still get that little <laughs> melancholy feeling that the harmony brings and the melody brings, you know, that might be just enough to, to, to pique their interest, you know, get them interested in maybe listening to the whole thing. So uh, we decided on a beat, and then I went in the studio and recorded uh, my part of the Grieg, and then Nejma recorded her rap in another location, and then um, April and uh, musician Brenda Alderman uh, put it all together. And the end result was blue, white, and red. And that whole, the video, all of the visuals that you see in that, that was all April. Uh -huh. Wow. And I pulled all of those, those images together. Wow. That is, that is. What did you, what feedback did you get from people who said, you did what? You know, <laughs> when they heard it or, uh, you know. Yeah, we didn't hear anything negative. Uh, mm -hmm. One one person commented, uh, "Okay, classical and hip hop." Hmm. <laughs> that, was, that was the worst we got. You know, everybody else seemed to love it. Some some were a little uh, traumatized by the the visuals. You know, we showed some of the, some of those mm -hmm. brutal lynching scenes, and um, uh, yeah, that was a bit much for some folks. But you know, this is this is imagery that we live with. You know, this is part of our our experience here in this country. So um, yeah, thought it was important to uh, to show to include. Well, mm -hmm. so, you know, wasn't it uh, that wasn't it like that? John Batiste said how well, there's only like twelve notes, and then you make right. the twelve notes to do everything. So I mean, right. you know, of course, you know, you could work it all together. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mm hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought that was I thought that was just like I, I was like, wow, this is great. But I liked <laughs> it from the beginning. All the visuals, I thought everything just like really flowed well together. And of course, you know, I know that you haven't been able to take that on the road because of the, <laughs> the pandemic, you know. Because of the uh, pandemic. But yeah, uh, yeah, that April did tremendous work on the on that video, and she's. Uh, She's a proud Be Free Award winner for 2021. All right. 
Well, we're going to take our, our second break, and then we want to talk about that award that you just got about um, Infinity and, of course, about the book and its sequel. Right. I mean, the next one that's out. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. This has been like such a joy talking mm-hmm. to you. Okay. Where, where you do so we start? Do we, oh, well, thank you. I mean, shoot, okay, does, does it start with infinity and all else like, like flows from that? <laughs> and <sighs> tell us about infinity. Infinity Productions. Oh, that is our production uh-huh. company. And uh-huh. um, you can go to infinity.com, and um, mm-hmm. we have you can see the clients that we have and the services that we offer, and um, the uh, the production for the show that we do for Manhattan Cable, the Noshing with Nina show, um, uh-huh. that is actually produced at the Manhattan Cable studios at MNN. But uh, mm-hmm. Infinity Productions is, is uh, our umbrella that uh, mm-hmm. enables us to, to function, to uh, crank that show out. We're, uh, we're broadcast here in Manhattan every third Wednesday, and um, it's being shown in, in the other boroughs throughout New York, and some, some other cities nationally are broadcasting it now. So it's the, uh, the Noshing with Nina show. You can go to noshwithnina.tv. To uh, to find that schedule and um, and Infinity, uh that's also where we we sell our products. So uh, you can mm-hmm. find the book there. You can find the CDs that we're offering, uh, the DVD of the documentary film on my father, and um, mm-hmm. uh, his two CDs, his familiar favorites, and the soundtrack CD for the film, and uh, my books. Are there? Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, Infinity is is where where you can find all that we got. Well, I'm looking right. at the page. you know me. You know I'm there at the page already, <laughs> and you have that that you said that it is your Infinity's assertion that is imperative to affirm and normalize the continued existence and success of women, women of color and the LGBTQIA community in the business and art industry. What weren't you seeing that you said you had to take this imperative and that you had to make mm-hmm. sure that this was affirmed? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was the exclusion was just across the board, you know, mm-hmm. and in any aspect of my uh, my art, my my creativity, my work, you know, it was always white men making the decisions and mm-hmm. you know supporting each other and scratching each other's back and uh, keeping everybody else out. So you know, I had a few. Uh, very positive experiences. I remember uh, I wrote in the book about the conductor Tor Johnson, uh, who conducted the Nashville Symphony, who gave me my first opportunity to appear as piano soloist with the Nashville Symphony. And he was a white man, and uh, he made a very positive impression. But um, across the board, um, for the most part, I just wasn't finding that level of support and and any recognition that there was anything wrong with that. You know, there are so so many out there who are ready to tell you, well, that's just the way it is and that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're missing out if you never hear another person's perspective, you know, or another person's experience. You're you're missing out on, on what other influences that come from all areas of the planet you know, you can't just live in your own little bubble with your own little perspective, with your own little people. I mean, you can't consider yourself knowledgeable or worldly unless you expose yourself to other people's experiences, other cultures, other languages, you know, other genders. You know, for a man to, to, to be able to listen to a woman's perspective on what it's like to have to deal with them all the time, you know, when they're making mm-hmm. the decisions all the time with no consideration for what our experience is. You know, it's all about sharing. It's all about reaching across the aisle and, and trying to make this world a better place because you see how people have just been left out and excluded and, and the poverty just runs rampant with that closed-minded thinking. So that's what we were trying to do, just to make sure. Mm -hmm. Representation is so important. Uh, What are some projects that we can look forward to? And, you know, before you even go into that, how has this pandemic impacted you and your work? Oh goodness! Well, the the writing is at least something I can um, I can focus on. Um, I'll share with you. I had a a health scare um, last year. It was really toward the end of of 2019, um, where there there was a cancer diagnosis. Uh, luckily, they caught it early. It was stage zero. But um, when mm-hmm. I had to go in for that initial surgery. Um, I just didn't know, you know, if I would come out or not. Just uh, my imagination was getting the best of me. So I just made a decision that I was going to document as much as of my life as I could, you know, and just get as much down on paper as I could. And uh, the first book was already uh, written and uh, at the publishers when I first went into the, the hospital. It actually came out that following month. In fact, they <laughs> they released it on Valentine's Day, I guess, since love was in the title, uh-huh. which is very cute. But um, then I, I finished the second book before I went in, and then I, uh, I put down an outline for the third book in case, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to finish it and uh, left that mm-hmm. with some friends and... Um, 
you know, just wanted to, to leave a record that I was here. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, you know, everything went fine. Surgery was fine. And I'm totally cancer free. And uh, thank mm-hmm. goodness. But um, mm-hmm. that really forced me to mm-hmm. think about my mortality and, and what I wanted to leave behind. And I wanted to be able to, to share stories of this black woman's journey in life and my adventures and some of the heartbreak, you know, just I was brutally honest about what I experienced so that young black girls could relate to it, you know, and, and see somebody who's, uh, who's been through it, you know, and hopefully they can find some, uh, some inspiration from what I've been able to overcome. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that that, that well, another part, like I said, you know, I'm gra- I have to do the deep dive, read, but just in skimming through and in, and in a lot of the things that you do, that honesty, because, you know, it's not easy, okay? Mm-hmm. And, but if you're doing, living your purpose, living what you love, you know, it's not that you can't overcome these things, you know, you just keep going, but you know it's not. You know, there's going to be bumps. Right. It's right. going to be bumps, mm-hmm. and right. you come through that. And then, like I said, and certain pictures, and I, I love the visual part. Not only like in blue, white, and red, but like in that one, uh, the concert, the way you were playing the piano. You sort of see that I'm still here. You know, that's that's what you're saying. I'm here. I'm still here. This is me, and that's an important message for young people to see and also to see that they can, you know, that, yes, right. you, can, you can dream and dream big and do this. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And another thing I'll, I'll share with you, I had found letters that my grandmother had written as a teenager to her parents uh. when she was touring with the Jubilee Singers in uh, the United Kingdom. They were in uh, England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales. And um, she was really documenting those tours with the details of the concerts and the dates and um, you know their experience as a troupe of black musicians and how some of the, the whites treated them. And you know she documented how the only whites who had problems with them were the Americans. They were staying mm-hmm. in some of the hotels where they were mm-hmm. staying. You know, the, mm-hmm. the Brits had no problem with them. And, in fact, they treated them as almost as royalty. You know, they gave them more respect than they gave some of the white Americans in some cases. But um, here she had left piles of letters. She was writing like a, a four-page letter, you know, both sides, to her parents at least once a week. So this is hundreds of letters from 1900 to 1903. And I found this this suitcase that she just dumped all of the letters in before she married and and moved from Ohio to West Virginia. And uh, that suitcase sat in my parents' house all these years. And um, we brought it with us back here to New York. And I had just started looking through just reading you know what was going on her penmanship was absolutely perfect and I was able to mm-hmm. read everything and then I just decided okay this is a book this is another book so I started typing mm-hmm. the letters up and luckily I had just finished typing those before I went into the hospital so that's going to be a, another 
publication within the next few years. But um, to have that history there again, you know, if if I just let it sit, you know, if I didn't type them up and didn't publish them, no one else would have access to this history. So uh, mm. this, I, I feel is my my uh, my purpose really to just let uh, future generations know that these women existed and these were the lives that the, they experienced and for her to travel just to, to see her perspective as a little a young black girl she wasn't little she was uh, like 19 I think when they first arrived in London when they they crossed the Atlantic and just the details of traveling to the boarding house and realizing that there there was no segregation and they could sit wherever they wanted and eat wherever they wanted it was really uh, you know, such an eye-opening experience for her and, and sharing all of that with her parents, you know. Uh, so that's going to be a forthcoming book. <laughs> that's the next wow. one. Her name yeah. was Nina uh, Hortense Clinton. Clinton was her maiden name. And uh, her married name was uh, was Gamble, which is my mother's maiden name. Hmm. Okay. Is, that, is Nina a family name? Uh, yes, my mother. My mother definitely named me after her mother. Mm-hmm. I think she expecting me to do mm-hmm. some mothering too, but <laughs> a strange role reversal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. She wants it. <laughs> I never met well. my grandmother, by the way. She she passed uh, right before my mother found out that she was pregnant with me. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I'm sure she was watching over me because there have been times when mm-hmm. there have been some miraculous saves that I'm sure my grandmother was responsible for. Mm-hmm. Grandmother, they're special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are special. So, so I see. Okay, I know you're going to write. What about your music? Do you have any any plans for that in the near future? Well, I want to go back to Europe as soon as I can. Uh, uh-huh. Since they did uh, they did invite me to give this concert in Vienna, and I think this time I want to just like spend some time there, you know, just settle uh-huh. and take in the culture, and you know, maybe do some master classes and and some recording uh-huh. and uh, shoot more videos. And really, I really enjoy that that video production. You know, the um, it's it's much less stressful than a live performance, and being able to just you know do it again. If you mess it up, just do it again. I just take some of the pressure off, mm-hmm. and I can really experiment. You know, with my my artistry, and and just find other ways. You know, pull other ways out of me to to express. You know. Uh, a feeling or, or a sentiment. It's really, um, I, I really enjoy that. And, and I have I have the best producer as far as I'm concerned. You know, uh-huh. you can just, uh, as long as we're able to do that, I think that's, that's very, very gratifying work. And, and it was so funny, I went, um, while I was over there, we happened upon their, the Steinway uh, showroom for the Steinway pianos. Now, keep in mind, in, in Austria, the Steinways are from Germany. They're the German Steinways. They aren't the, uh, the Steinways mm-hmm. that are made here. But um, so they're again very nice people. And I was playing on some of the pianos. And they have a, a 
concert grand right in front of a big uh, window, like a, a huge bay window right on the main street. And I was playing there for a while, and then I looked up, and <laughs> there were all of these tourists right outside the window, you know, with their cameras going. <laughs> we had a whole crowd outside on the street. It was really funny. That that never happens here. You know, people, I get the feeling people here are just so distracted, you know, with their phones and they can watch mm-hmm. anything whenever they want or they've, they've got their eyes in three screens at a time and when somebody is actually doing this live, it just kind of goes over their head sometimes, it seems. Or maybe also people just don't want to pay for live music, you know, they're, they're able to mm-hmm. access everything for free. But there, at least, you feel the appreciation. You know, people mm-hmm. are really fascinated with what you're able to do and and I get the feeling that everyone studies music, you know, to a degree that we just don't have here. You know, since mm-hmm. since the state is is financing the music education for the young people mm-hmm. there. So yeah, the so, you know, go ahead. Well, you know, in part it's sort of like and I'm wondering one of the to me the plus side of this pandemic is that and you have it now. You've done, you know, you've written, you've uh, directed film, you're, you know, you've done all that. But we're able to find a blend of the two to where even while you're there doing live performances or that you can find ways that you can do it like that's a video or whatever a performance, but you could expand the audience or reach more people. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that? Yes, yes uh-huh. definitely. And I don't know if you saw the video um, where I'm actually directing Fifth Jubilee Singers. Um, I did. <laughs> you did. You saw that. Great. Yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, or, <laughs> that was or, you really... Know, I mean, yeah. That was yeah, a, uh, uh-huh. a master class. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I had um, I had heard the Jubilee Singers perform here at Carnegie Hall, and they were doing my father's arrangement of Steal Away, and um, I heard that they were kind of missing some of the subtleties that he insisted upon when he was directing the group. So I asked the director if I could go in and, and you know, share with them some of my, my father's interpretation, and um, that was a, a tough gig to book, I tell you, because the director of the Jubilee Singers right now is uh, is from Africa. I think he's from Ghana. And uh, I got the feeling sometimes that he wasn't too keen on women stepping <laughs> out of their uh, traditional uh-huh. roles. And um, uh-huh. no, we really had to, had to fight for that, uh, to get to do that master class. Yeah. But they were so responsive. You know, you heard in the in the video that they, they just responded immediately to um, to my my gestures, and I'm just in conducting. I'm just used to to working with with orchestras, so with with instruments. You know, I, I really haven't done any choral conducting before, but to hear the response and to hear the breath, you know, it's really an addictive experience. <laughs> they're just uh-huh. so right there, and they're they're a wonderful group. And uh, I really hope that we see more out of the Jubilee Singers, you know, on a national stage because they, uh, you, you heard, they just won a Grammy this year for the uh-huh. first time. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, for the first time, you know, they've been around forever. 
Uh-huh. Right, yeah. since 1871, and they finally got their uh-huh. first Grammy. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, I don't know, maybe my master class had something to do with <laughs> their well, you know, I don't know. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I have hope in, an, in a new generation, this generation mm-hmm. who maybe had, and in part because of the pandemic, I feel like burned out or have been exposed to via the Internet, you know, something that maybe they didn't see before. Maybe they had never heard of a Jubilee Singers, and they'll see that, and who are always Mm -hmm. scrolling and looking for something, and then, wow, I could do that. So I have hope in this next generation, and that many many young people, I mean, we have a a group, a Mosaic youth group, who, who are kids, who the things that they're singing, they're doing a cappella and all like that, and these are like high school students. So you know how they say, sometimes they say everything old is new again, that maybe mm-hmm. as we particularly want to know more about ourselves, we'll dig in and grab a hold of some of these things that are really our history and see, like, you know, it's, this has been with us all along. So right. That's my right. hope. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yes. And for the, the kids these days, you know, I, I see so many of them just so distracted with their phones and they, they can't even put the phones down. And if you're going to sit in a concert or if you're going to sit in a five-hour opera, you know, you're going to have to keep that phone turned off. And some of them, as a result, are just so emotionally disconnected. You know, mm-hmm. they have, they have mm-hmm. to check their, their Twitter account every two seconds. And it just it keeps you from... From, from having the opportunity to really settle into your emotions. And mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. I mean, the, the operas take you on an emotional journey and you have to devote your full attention to, mm-hmm. to have the maximum experience, you know. So I hope we can learn uh, to really get back in touch with our emotions as a culture because we, we seem pretty emotionally dead right now. I mean, granted, it's a horrible time and there's been so much death in the culture mm-hmm. from the pandemic and people are just just suffering. It's really... I mean, who could have imagined something like this would happen? So, like I said, I'm really looking forward to doing a dig, deep dive into Practicing for Love and I'll be watching for the rest of your books as well because I'm a book person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, great, great. Well, the next mm-hmm. one is Practice What You Preach. And will it be through Infinity? Yes. I'll be able to find it there? Okay. Well, this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you so much, Nana. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you again. It's been delightful. Yes, I will definitely keep Mm -hmm. you posted on everything that's happening. And don't forget the Lambda Literary Award. That's uh, that nomination. Oh, please. Mm -hmm. I mean, before we go... Please tell us about how did you find out about the Lambda Literary Award and how were your feelings? Oh, that was so exciting. There was an announcement in the Associated Press um, uh-huh. that Lambda Literary had, uh, had announced their finalists for 2021. And, uh-huh. and then I got an email that uh, <laughs> had the link to the, to the Associated Press announcement and then... Lambda Literary asking um, uh, for the correct pronunciation of my name, and they wanted us uh, they, <laughs> they wanted us to pre-record our acceptance speeches so that uh, they can uh, they can run those on the virtual award ceremony. 
but uh, that's not until June 1st. So okay. I'm, uh, since I'm not, you know, my publishing company doesn't really have the budget for uh, publicists and promotion. So here again, I'm I'm doing this mostly on my my own, but we're doing what we can to get the word out mm -hmm. there. And um, yes, it's very exciting. So if you Google Lambda Literary, you know, finalists and 2021 awards, the the book comes up. The Practicing for Love, you'll see listed among the, the nominees for uh, women's memoir biography. So that's very I mean, that is. I had no you idea. Know, well, <laughs> well, congratulations to you on that. That yeah. is that is really great, you know. Um, that is awesome. That is, yeah, in, in fact, that's what... Um, and then we've been all over the place and we are... Ah, you know, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I thank you again. Uh, you're in such great company with your Lambda Literary Award. And, Kizzy, any closing remarks? Thank you for teaching us about the importance of passing down ancestral wisdom. And I think, you know, what resonated deeply with me is just the importance of you know, not only our musical history, but, you know, our ancestral history. And, you know, it's amazing to witness how deeply connected you are to your ancestors and you're, be, you're able to share that work and uh, share that work with others. And I think that's, you know, so important for black people especially to continue to take that deep dive in our ancestries and our we. We have ancestral trauma, yes, but we also have ancestral gifts and ancestral wisdom. And I think, you know, your work is a testimony to that. And just thank you so much, Nina, for sharing your experiences with us. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I just, everything resonated with me today. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you so much. It was absolutely my pleasure. I'd like to thank our guest, Lambda award-winning author, Nina Kennedy. In her memoir, Practicing for Love, she shares her life as a child prodigy. As a musical genius growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, she tells about performing worldwide as a celebrated concert pianist, orchestral conductor, spoken word artist, and filmmaker. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Truck Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of various sectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.